0: river's full of hope I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope Aspen's gold snow snowcat peaks, the elk call me away I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day I've got nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain I'm an outdoor junkie, through and through, hunts my middle name my eyes are on the target, broad heads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can a few.
1: Welcome back to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here and Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What is going on, Bob?
2: Oh man, we just, we just got done recording a podcast and I am so fired up to go hunt some spot and stock mule deer right now.
1: Oh, man, you guys get out your pen and paper and start writing down notes because this one is loaded with good information.
2: Yep, if you have hunted mule deer or are going to go hunt mule deer, this guy is incredible. I mean, you'll hear the stories. (laughs) Brian Kelzer, we had him on last fall right before whitetail season, and we never even got to the mule deer because he's also an – insane whitetail hunter and we just went down the rabbit hole so we never got there and uh he really loves hunting mule deer he's uh he's killed some giants and you can tell from the stories he is just a hunting machine and a lot of tips in here he was he's really good at explaining you know the the small things that uh i think a lot of guys skip over when they're telling a story or when they get asked some of these questions don't you think james
1: yeah, I mean, he really gives you the fine details, uh, where he finds the success. And some of the things I was thinking about why this interview is happening is some of the myths that you hear Western hunters say that, you know, the compound guys are like, you gotta be prepared for 80 yard shots. And, and you even hear stick bow guys saying, well, I, you gotta be prepared for these 30 yard shots and 40 yard shots because these, these open country meal deer, they're tough. Well, that's not the case, uh, with Brian Colzer. or this guy. He's shooting them from seven feet, 10 feet, 10 yards, four yards.
2: Yeah. He's uh, just, he's waiting for them to fall asleep <laughs> and <then> basically <laughs> just mugging them right there. Just, yeah, Just
1: mugging them. Yeah. Like how. Talk about having a, a a high ethic for the animal. He waits till they're asleep before he yeah, puts they them to sleep no permanently. I don't have no idea
2: what even happened. I mean, he could have just went up and put his hand over their mouth and been like, "Oh, you're out." I mean, incredible, incredible stories, incredible tips, and you know, he's he's not a high country mule deer hunter. He's hunting the high desert in that rugged, you know, BLM state land, hot, nasty, windy country that most people drive by heading up to the high country for the beautiful vistas. And he is a very patient hunter. I know one theme, I think with everybody we've had on this podcast that has mastered the art of traditional bow hunting, all of these guys are super patient and, and Brian is no exception. I mean, eight days just watching deer because the conditions aren't right. You know, I mean, sitting for hours, you know, in the hot sagebrush waiting for one to stand up or waiting for a buck to fall asleep when most guys would run out of patience or their leg will fall asleep. And they'll just be like, I'm, you know, I, I can do this. I can throw a rock or, or they bust the buck out and they realize, oh, he's gone. I'll just, you know, I'm, it's over. I get up and walk away instead of, you know, crawling for hundreds of yards out of there. So they don't see him. I mean, it's all those little things that he's able to put together and that, you know, that take a ton of patience. And he has definitely mastered the art of it, I think, for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, and to the younger guys listening, that just because somebody uh, isn't recording his hunt or is not on social media uh, showing off what he's doing doesn't mean that these guys don't exist because uh, he is evidence that they do. There's a ton of guys out there that have exercised patience, dedication, persistence, uh, hunting with the stick and string, that find unbelievable success, even on mature critters. Um, and those are the kind of guys that we definitely like to dig up and bring to you guys. They're so inspiring. Um, I think you guys are going to absolutely love this one. Um, I'm going to fight with Bob just to be the guy that gets to edit it, because I can't wait to listen to it again. <laughs>
2: I know. Me too. That's why we're uh, immediately doing the intro. So, Again, you guys will love this one, but to get a little sidetracked here, before we do that, we're going to do a giveaway for our Patreon members. Again, if you guys have not gotten signed up to support the podcast, that's the way to do it. Go on patreon.com forward slash quest. Get signed up for one of the tiers and you'll automatically be entered into these giveaways we're doing. We just gave away an amazing custom knife from uh, our buddy from Hawaii, uh, Hiko Ito custom knives. And I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but go on and check them out. Incredible. Just sent that out to, uh well, I will be sending it out tomorrow to Tim Johnson. He just emailed me his address. So congratulations there. And we yeah, appreciate thank you, Tim. All, all the companies out there that are giving us this stuff to give away. It's uh really helps us out. So if you are a company out there and you have something that you, uh, Want to kick down for us It helps us out And uh, give something back to the listeners So uh, we have uh, Terry called us from the footage shaft And we have a $50 gift card That we're going to send To the lucky winner we draw right now
1: Yeah and I want to say thank you to Terry I uh, just got a hold of him this week He is a uh, Major distributor for True Flight Feathers uh, Big fan of True Flight Feathers Myself uh, Love them and uh, I was uh, able to find some kind of uh, hard to find. I wanted some of their bright striped feathers, and he didn't have them, but he was willing to get them in stock for me and get them shipped out. So, big thanks to Terry for uh, helping me out on the feathers. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We really do appreciate it.
2: All right, drum roll.
0: Sounds
2: <laughs> <laughs> less like a rattlesnake. That's good. I got. John A. So, John A., I will be sending you a message. Didn't give us his last name on the Patreon. And uh, we'll be getting this $50 gift card out to you. Thanks again, Terry. And uh, for you freeloaders out there, get on Patreon. Have one less cup of coffee a week. Since you're driving to work every day, listening to our podcast anyway, All there's thousands of you out there. And uh we only have what do we have thirty some patrons right now. So Yeah, so think
1: about your odds of winning something right now with only thirty guys in the bucket with all these great prizes. We're getting ready to give away a bare recurve bow. Uh we've got a couple of those to give away. And there's only thirty guys in the bucket right now. So
2: And you know and for the guys that want to kick down a little more, if you do one of the higher tiers, we got some great discounts from Oh, well, some good guys, you know, yeah, Matt Andy
1: at, Ponce yep. at Addictive Archery, uh, Bob Smith, uh, Big Stick Archery. Um, we've got, we've got more, uh, more yep. stuff coming Matt
2: Webb, get good, Matt Webb, great discount on those Bush vests. And, uh, James and I are working on a lot of other guys, um, to get some more discounts. We're just super busy. So if, uh, if you guys haven't gone on there, get on there. Like I said, have one less cup of coffee. Help us yeah. out. It helps us from having to try to call and get a bunch of sponsorships and all this stuff because it does cost money to run this thing and, and all that good stuff. So we appreciate it. You guys are awesome.
1: Yep, and you can find us on uh, Instagram. If you guys are on Instagram, it's a really great place to follow the podcast. Uh, we put up pictures every week that uh, pertain to the podcast that we have out. Um, we're putting up these prizes that we're uh, giving away, pictures of these prizes. You can also, if you're on Instagram, you can go to our bio and click right onto the Patreon and go right to the Patreon account where you can uh, donate and become a Patreon member. Um, if you're not on Instagram, you can go to tradquest.com and you can get onto our Patreon page off of our website. Um, and we should start, we'll try to start posting more on our website as well. Uh, but once again, we really appreciate you guys' support. Uh, me and Bob are just regular blue collar guys that are just trying to, you know, make bow hunting better and shine a bright light on traditional bow hunting.
2: Yep. Uh, you guys will really enjoy this one. Get you all fired up. So here you go. Brian Kelzer. Enjoy. This is Brian. Hey Brian. Welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? Hey. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. I got James on the line here too.
3: Hey
1: Brian, thanks for coming Excellent. back on buddy.
2: How's, uh, how's the family doing? How's the old man?
3: Oh, well, the old man just had a full hip replacement and, uh, he, he's down for the count here for, for a month or so.
2: Yikes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah so major surgery number 15, I think, since the big tree stand accident. Yikes. Yeah, this is all stemming back to that spill he took back in 97. They were supposed to go in and just do a minor little procedure. But uh, when they opened him up, they realized that pretty much everything they'd done 20-whatever years ago was worn out and literally loose. So he he got the full Monty again.
2: Wow.
1: Wow. So you're saying uh, the man that never stops moving is stationary. We might have to get him back on the podcast then. <laughs>
3: You he he would be tickled too because he's he's stuck in his recliner or his bed doing nothing right now.
2: <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> perfect.
3: <laughs> yeah, how's how's everything out in Oregon for you guys?
2: Oh, it's good. We just uh just starting to see some signs of spring. Rain rain starting to let up here and there. So nice. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a long winter. How's your kid doing?
3: Oh, he's doing good. He's growing like a weed with six months this weekend had him in a backpack yesterday we took about a two-hour hike picked up a handful of white tail sheds he and i so he slept most of the time but (laughs) (laughs) it was a it it was a good day to be out and about it's kind of starting to act like spring around here too
1: nice did you uh, pick up any good ones
3: no nothing good just some mediocres the best one i found was a year old uh, five point and hell, I was in about twelve inches of snow and I stepped on it and felt it rock and dug it out and was like, "Ooh, I'll be darned!" <laughs> but uh, no, other than that, just some some small little four points and stuff.
1: Do you uh, shed hunt for mule deer sheds or?
3: I I do a little bit. That usually coincides with uh, looking for elk sheds for me. Um, so we still got a boatload of snow in the mountains and all that. And the elk are just starting to drop around here. So come April, I'll, uh, I'll go out and look for some mule deer sheds and elk sheds.
1: Awesome. Nice. Well, I, I know we really got uh, into the weeds on the white last time, and we're really hoping to uh, focus on mule deer this time. If you're uh, good with that.
3: That sounds great.
1: It's Awesome
2: yeah when, uh, when we talked to your dad when we had him on he said we have to get you on to talk about mule deer because uh he said you you have uh got a pile of them down in your house so james and i are both scheming on hunting this year and we always are going back and forth between we don't have white tails around here what we got black tails mule deer and elk and so we're always like man we're one week it's we're going to go do this and that and uh We've been kind of on the mule deer kick lately, so I told him, I said, "We got to get Brian on, <laughs> just for our good, own selfish reasons."
3: Good, yeah,
2: yeah. No, so, Blacktails,
3: mule deer, blacktails—that's something I want to do. Some just a miniature, a little bit smaller version of the mule deer.
1: Yeah, yeah but they act more like a white tail, I think.
3: They act to a little bit of the best of both worlds, right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, come on out if you can. Uh, if you can handle rain and more <laughs> rain and lots of rain. Uh, come on out to Oregon. Yeah. We've got some great
3: spots. Probably put an elevated rest on the old stick and some
2: plastic fletching. Yeah, oh that's, gosh. that's not a bad route to go. That's what I, I've told James that a million yeah. times. If I go back to hunt blacktails, I'll be, uh, I'll be having Trent make me one of his sweet rests and going for there. And, and um, uh, anyway.
1: I'm just fine with wet feathers myself.
3: Wet feathers, yeah. I put that uh, that whatever that powder gunk is uh, yeah. on them, and it seems to seems to work pretty good. But yeah, rain does get a little old after a while.
1: So, what does mule deer look like? How, how you have been hunting mule deer for a long time? Do You start scouting them early on. What does that uh, look like for you?
2: And what what terrain are you hunting them into? Are you are you high country mule deer? Are you hunting them in the desert?
3: No, Wyoming is my mule deer state. Okay. Um, our, our whitetail hunting around here in Montana is, is fantastic. Our mule deer hunting is so-so. Um, and, and growing up in Southwest Montana, I had, I had plenty of access to whitetails, you know, 10 minutes from my house. So I was pretty much a whitetail guy, uh, you know, through high school and all that, just with limited time and, and all that. And I didn't really catch the mule deer bug. I bothered him a little bit when I bumped into him in the mountains looking for an elk, but it was never my go-to critter, never the reason I was up there. And it wasn't until, uh, 2007 that I went to Wyoming, uh, the first time dedicated just going mule deer hunting and it, it changed my life. <laughs> it, it was, it was incredible and they, I've been back there. Oh, I missed a couple years, like 13, 14. I missed. I didn't go down, but other than that, I've been, been to Wyoming pretty much every year since 27, chasing those mule deer. It's, uh, completely different than what I'm used to. I'm, I'm going down to the really broken, dry, arid, horrible stuff, uh, rocks and sagebrush and nastiness.
2: So high and, desert.
3: Uh, that's where high desert biome, exactly.
1: Yeah. And what's the availability for tags uh, in Wyoming? Can the guy hunt that uh, every year from non-resident perspective?
3: I, Yeah, I, I drew every year I applied for the first, oh, five years, four or five years, something like that. Then all of a sudden the odds, they kind of changed the system up a little bit, and the odds started to get a little bit skewed. It was pretty much a guaranteed tag in the region I was going. Um, for a non-resident, then they changed things up, and they were looking for a little bit more money. So uh, the the regular tag you could put in for was like three hundred bucks, something like that, and it would turn into about a sixty percent chance draw. But if you bought like the next level tag up and you spent six hundred bucks, it was a hundred percent. So I I ponied up the the money to do it because I didn't want to. I didn't want a 40% chance of not drawing. I wanted to go hunting down there. So that's what I've been doing the last handful of years is just buying that $600 model and getting my tag and being able to go.
2: And their season, isn't it archery only for like a week or two and then it's then rifle season opens right away? Like how does the season structure work?
3: The archery season in Wyoming is September 1st to October 1st, period. And that's what my tag is good for.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Cool. So there's no, November, no rifle interaction during that time?
3: Nope, no rifle interaction, uh, where I'm hunting during that time. And their rifle season runs from October 1st to November 1st. And the reason the Wyoming has great mule deer is they're not blowing them up with rifles in the rut. There's, there's no mule deer hunting in November, uh, down there in Wyoming. So that whole month of November when they're being dumb and coming down and standing by roads and all that, they're, they're not getting shot, which is our huge problem here in Montana. We can hunt mule deer all the way through Thanksgiving here in Montana and they get silly and start chasing ladies and they, they don't last long come right.
1: Sure. So do you find, uh, starting September 1st that in the Wyoming region that you're hunting that the bucks are stripped of their velvet at that time, or is it a percentage? Could you elaborate on that?
3: Uh, first of September, I would say 90% of the deer are still in velvet. Um, wow. It's about uh, that, that second week you get to maybe 50, 50. And by the, by the third week of September, they're all, they're all stripped.
1: Okay. That that's different than Oregon, isn't it, Bob?
2: Uh no, I think, you know, our season opens the last full weekend in August and they're usually they're usually in velvet for about a week, week and a half, depending. You know, like I'd say by September first. Um usually there's still some bucks in velvet running around. But yeah, it seems like uh I know Colorado too, those guys are hunting well into September and killing Velvet Bucks. <laughs> around here it seems around the first. Yeah. You know, they're gonna be pretty much you know stripped out especially the bigger bucks so i think they're yeah. a little bit behind us further out that way you go it seems okay that's what i was thinking
3: and that's how we are a little bit in montana too usually by that first of september or so the the bigger bucks are all out of velvet here in montana as well
1: so do you make it down there to some a pre-scouting trip in the summertime or do you just uh, kind of go to the same areas that uh, you've been going to in the past, or what does that look like for you as far as game plan?
3: I've only ever gone down scouting one time down there uh, preseason, um, and that was a couple years ago. I started, uh, I got in kind of a friend of a friend um, circle, ended up getting on a, a pretty cool place down there, it is okay for mule deer, but the fantastic thing about it is, is it butts up to a bunch of state and BLM land, um, that, uh, that is accessible, but it takes a four or five mile walk for somebody to come off a road to get there. And I'm able to, to get through these folks' place and get to the edge of it. And then I just have a, a boatload of country that I can just go look over. And I scouted before I hunted a few years ago down there, found what I wanted to see. But I checked out the, the Google Earth and the Onyx and all that stuff and looked over So I had a pretty good idea where where the good bucks were going to be, if there was any down there. And I ended up finding the the deer that I ended up killing that year on that scouting trip. And the, the topography lent itself pretty well to some educated guesses on just where they were and where they were bedding all that and ended up uh killing him opening weekend uh that i went down there but other than that uh, mule deer are fairly predictable you just look for that rough broken country and the rougher and gnarlier that's where the bigger bucks are going to be so i don't spend too much time looking at just rolling hills or anything I i want the broken gnarliest stuff and figure out how the shadows lay, and and what the predominant wind is, and I'll spend my time picking it apart. And if there's a good one in there, you can usually find them.
1: Can you uh, elaborate on how the shadows lay?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, boy, I could, I could talk for a long time on that. <laughs> the big thing with with Wyoming mule deer, what what a guy needs to kill a big mule deer with a with a stick bow down there in Wyoming is high wind and hot temperatures because you need those deer to to tuck up tight to try to get out of both of those things and if you can if you can get both of those things in your favor um and and find a deer you've got a pretty good chance of getting in on him the shadows uh i've listened to uh marv's uh podcast with you guys and and he nailed it but you know he's doing high mountain colorado stuff and and i'm going completely opposite the deer the deer in wyoming feed high up on the plateaus where there's grass and then they drop down into the badlands and horrible canyons to bed during the day so what i usually end up doing is right at daybreak i'll be up on a high knob somewhere that gives me a real good vantage point of whatever i'm wanting to see and i just wait for that sun to come up and start picking apart the prairie and try to find a deer feeding and working his way back to where he's going to bed. And I'll, uh, I'll I'll watch where he goes in, what cut he does. And generally, once they get out of the direct sunlight and get down just into somewhere shadow, shadowy, they'll bed down and chew their cud for an hour or so, something like that. And as the sun climbs higher in the sky and starts to touch them, then they'll get up and they'll go into some awful rabbit hole and that's where they'll, they'll spend their whole day. And, uh, so just understanding how the sun comes up and where the shadows are going to be first thing in the morning, you got to place yourself on a vantage point where you can see those shadows. Cause if, if you're, if you're not where you can see the shadows and you're just looking at sunshine, you're, you're never going to see those deer once they drop off the plateaus.
2: So, so you're saying you want to be able to see into the shadows, but not, yep, not have the sun direct. Because I know I read an article a long time ago, Randy Ulmer wrote, and it was, it was about this thing. And he said a lot of guys will set up, you know, with like the sun at their back in the morning, which he said he doesn't specifically because of that. He says that you know, as you the go. sun's coming up, he wants it might you might have some time there in the morning where. The sun's messing you up, you know, it's hard to see because of the glare, but he's like, you want to, that's yep. where you want to be.
3: That's where you want to be. You need to be able to be seeing those shadows and having that sun, sun come opposite, you know, come up opposite of you. And so you can see all those little shadowy pockets and see just where the deer is going to go down into and something, you know, I'm looking from, you know, a mile plus away sometimes at this stuff. And you see you see the deer you want to go after, drop down, and you might see him bed in that in that first bed and just kind of hang out and chew his cud. And if you don't have time to get there, you do not get up and go try to get closer and make a play. You just need to be patient and sit there, wait for that sun to come up, see where he gets up, and then see where he goes, and let him get down into that day bed. And then, then you got time, you know, that, that's usually, you know, L sun ups like, you know, six thirty or something at that point, uh, of the year. So you, you pretty much got until about eight o'clock, uh, to hang out and wait for him to, to get up, you know, depending where they are, how steep the terrain is. And geez, you got from eight o'clock to, Five o'clock in the afternoon, probably before they're going to get out of that bed again, their day bed. So you got plenty of time to work with them then.
2: And what do you do if say you're glassing in the morning like that and a buck drops down into a cut and you don't see exactly where he bedded? You, you've follow what I'm saying. Like he goes out of sight and you just yep. can't pick up. Are you going to leave that buck? for another day or are you going to slip in there risk bumping him and try to get a closer look you know what i'm saying
3: that completely depends on the topography usually a deer will not bed uh his day bed will not be in any little cuts that are running east and west because that sun will will be in there too much they like the north south cuts uh, it, it affords more, more shadows and just stays cooler. So if you see them drop down and depending on some of these bad land fingers, you know, a, a big gully will turn into 20 little fingers towards the bottom. And, and they all kind of just weave and you can kind of go by process of elimination, just looking and seeing what, uh, what's going to afford the most shadows during the day so you can eliminate a handful of them and if there's a place you can get you can't just cruise right in and try to pop over each little finger and look in because you're all you're going to see is a deer running away but if there's a the chance to try to, to loop a canyon or do something and get a better look yeah i'll i'll work that angle a bunch and try to find them and sometimes those things are just like houdini and they are plumb gone and I'll just leave him be for the day. There's nothing I can do for him, and I'll be back there in the evening somewhere trying to see, and I'll be darned if at about 5 or 6 o'clock all of a sudden this deer will walk out of somewhere, and it's like, where Where did he come from? You know, what badger hole was he in all day long that he couldn't be seen?
1: Is, is water a factor when choosing uh, a location?
3: There needs to be some water. I, I honestly uh, – my friend Mike Barrett that we've, we've spoke about before, the mule deer guru, he, he swears that mule deer don't really need water and they only eat rocks. Um, <laughs> and sometimes you think that's true because there's, there's so, so little water in so much of that country. Um, there's a few, this place I'm hunting now, there are a few stock tanks. Uh, they run some cows on their property and those big mule deer, they'll get up and they'll walk a mile plus uh after dark to go get a drink of water at one of these stock tanks then turn around and and be heading back for the badlands you you don't catch a big mule deer buck at water uh usually during the daylight in in my country i'm hunting anyways
2: yeah and so Speak a little bit on the wind. You said you want some high temperatures and a lot of wind and maybe explain to the listeners why that's important.
3: High temperatures. Basically what it comes down to is the more miserable you are out there <laughs> in the wind and, and the hot, the better the mule deer hunting is. Uh, these mule deer tuck up so tight in, in these little muddy cuts and holes. Sometimes I've been five yards from these deer, and I know they're there, and I can't see them. And when you're getting that close to a big mule deer on a bluebird, calm day, there is no way to pull it off. You need you need a good breeze rustling the grass and the sagebrush to have any chance at all of getting into to stick bow range on one of these things. So when I wake up in the morning and that wind's already rustling the grass real good, I'm I'm plum excited and if I know the temp's going to be 95 that day I put on my my sunscreen and in my little boonie hat that gives me some shade over my eyes and I go out there with a smile cuz it's a deer killing day.
1: <laughs> so so tell me about the days I mean we plan our vacations most of us right we're going to go for a 7 to 10 day or whatever we can allot ourselves. And what are you doing on the days that you don't have the wind. I mean, how do you make the best of it, and what what is your tactics then?
3: Stay back and watch. I'll I'll be up there at, at my vantage points in, in the morning, uh, just just like I would be if it was a good deer hunting day. I'd uh, just just be watching them, seeing who's out there. Maybe seeing trying to find a different buck. Maybe I've already found a buck that I like. I'm just getting a eyeball on him watching him go to bed and then you just leave him alone for the day. It's a lot like going to Alaska, you know, on, on the rain days and stuff, you can figure you're going to lose probably half your hunt to lousy weather or fog or something. Same deal with a bluebird. Nice day. It's dead calm down in Wyoming. It's pretty much a lost day, but it's, you still go out there and watch and try to learn something or, or see something new. And you pretty much get one chance at a big mule there. And it, if you get antsy and try to rush it on a day like that forget it it's pretty well over he'll be in the next county and you'll be doing something else
2: that's where patience comes in
1: so how many times have you been in a situation where you you know take that day off and then you get another day i mean do these days start stacking up on you it sounds like worst case scenario and, and maybe tell us a story where that worked out for you or didn't work out for you or
3: I had the buck I killed in 2010. I went down to Wyoming. I was fresh off of getting divorced. I had everything completely taken care of at work. I gave myself basically I was going to come home when I decided I wanted to come home (laughs) and I got down to Wyoming, uh, think that year I went down the second weekend of September and I hunted for a week and I either had dead calm days or I had dead calm and cool days and those deer weren't tucking up and they were just laying more out on the open hillsides where they could see real good and I couldn't do a thing with them and I burned seven or eight straight days basically doing nothing but just looking at deer, because I I couldn't do it. It was so calm; you couldn't get within a hundred yards of the things, especially in that crunchy, nasty stuff down there. And I ended up seeing a heck of a nice, non-typical. And I spent I found him probably right at the end of that oh seven eight days, something like that. And I spent five five more days down there the the weather finally warmed up and started to get a little bit of breeze and i spent five days with that deer and i ended up killing him on the fifth day so i was in whatever you know 13 14 days hunting down there
2: wow but that takes was, a lot of patience so it that. To, that takes a lot of patience to lot sit back patience. for eight days <laughs>
3: Oh gosh, especially he was a big old non-typical too. It was really hard to just sit there from a ways off and watch him and know that there was nothing I could do with him and just needing to leave him be when every bit of me was wanting to just, oh, maybe I could get to this rock and maybe if he got up and fed, he'd come my way. I was, no, you're just going to scare him. <laughs> Play it smart and just leave him be and wait for it to get right.
1: And are you, do you have other hunters anywhere in the vicinity or, um, or do you have are you a lot of times you have this country to yourself so that's not a factor
3: you know the last few years there's uh, been uh, myself and my good friend bob morton we've been going down and hunting together uh his son tom hunted with us this year but uh, that's kind of their busy season for them they're just coming off hand they're ranchers and they don't get as much time down there uh, as I do, so oh, what, I hunted three days with them this last year and then they were pretty much out on commitments and then it was just me going back in by myself which was perfect I, I like to hunt by myself for these big mule deer and I there, nobody, I haven't seen anybody get into any of this, this stator BLM that I've been hunting in, in a couple, well three years now
2: it seems like there's, you know, that the de- that desert country there's there's a lot of people that hunt that high country and there's still some places like that out there in the desert that, I mean, nobody pretty low deer densities and, like you said about the misery, it's just hot and miserable and everybody looks at it and says that's eh, just oh. wide open. There's nothing here and they drive through there. So
1: not not real desirable. Yeah. Well,
2: it's
3: not real and being that you got to pack water i mean heck if i was if i was coming in off an access point into this stuff and you got to do a five mile hike at 95 degrees with the wind blowing man you need a lot of water i mean all your weight right there is going to be water then gosh you shoot something and you got to get it out of there in those temps on your back you're you're flirting with you know your whole deer spoiling before you can even even get it out so I'm, I'm pretty lucky that I can, I can get through these, these folks property to get to the edge of this stuff and then go hunting. And I think a lot of guys, I, even if they did know about this, this stuff, they might just
2: yeah, think it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Not going to put in the work. That's for sure.
3: Not going to put in the work. And you know, it comes down to an ethics thing there too. I mean, a big set of horns doesn't outweigh, you know, just letting know, pretty well knowing that your deer is going to spoil and you're just going to be coming out of the hills with a set of horns and nothing else too. So, I mean, I got to give people kudos for for not going in on a place where they know they're going to lose all that meat.
1: So since wind is crucial in uh getting close, can you tell us a little bit about like how you play that wind? Um, As far as, are you wanting a a side wind? Um, Are you wanting wind straight to your face, you know, crosswind? And how close are you trying to get to make the shot with this kind of wind? Um, Maybe you change your equipment at all, knowing that you're hunting in high winds?
3: Um, I don't worry too much about the wind, Most Uh, most of the deer I've shot three of the big mule deer I've shot down there have been sleeping in their bed and I've shot them. The buck I killed this year I shot at about 10 feet Um, The buck three years ago I think was maybe four or five yards Uh, Another one same deal, four or five yards Uh, I've killed one buck down there over over 20 yards Everything else has been Oh, I had one at about 15 yards, but the majority of them, it's easier to measure in feet than it is, uh, in yards. Um, so that, that high wind, it's brutal and it's a waiting game too. Sometimes you get in there, the deer I killed this year, I spent two and a half hours, 10 feet from this deer. He stood twice and he was in, he was at about a, oh, Seven, eight foot cut bank that he was tucked up against. It was this little crescent moon hole. And I crept up and got to where I could just see horn tips on him and the wind is just pounded me right straight in the face. It couldn't have been any better. And it was supposed to be high winds all day long. So I knew I had time. So I had an arrow on the string and I sat there where I was just looking at horn tips. And I knew how he was facing because I could see him from the rim up above. I glassed him for about 400 yards uh, up on this rim. I knew how he was laying. I knew everything. I was able to loop around, drop down behind him, come up through the cuts, get up on the finger that he was on. And then I realized I could do absolutely nothing with him because it was kind of the mud almost made a bit of a cornice, so he was tucked in under the bank. And I knew it was just going to be a waiting game because they, they get up and they stretch during the day, just like we would if we sit too long. One position, something starts to get tired and want to go to sleep. And I knew I just had to wait. And he got up for like 20 minutes after I, I got him positioned right above him. And he stood, and I just leaned back to where I was still only looking at horn tips and going to see if he took a step, turned his head away, something he never did, laid right back down. Oh, an hour or so later, he got up and did the same thing. But this time, he repositioned his body against the bank. So his body was going away from me instead of tucked under the bank at me. And I let him lay down. And I knew the way his head was. I was able to peek up just enough that I could see his butt and his horn tips. And I knew how everything was positioned. And I had a little cut in the mud to shoot through but I needed him to go to sleep in order to do that. So I just waited him out and it was another hour or so. And he finally got drowsy and I saw his horn start to sink and then he kind of jerk him back up and then his horns start to sink again. And then I saw him commit to putting his head down and they'll nap just like an old dog during the day. They'll get on their side and just lay flat on their side and sleep. And I let him get that head down, and, and get comfortable, and I gave him a minute or so, and I just peeked over that edge and got to where I could see his chest, and I just leaned right over and shot him in his bed while he was he was out cold. and He took off down the canyon and and died a couple hundred yards down the way, and it worked out great.
2: Oh, man, that sounds awesome. Oh. You could have, um. I mean, you're that close, you could have just taken your knife out and jumped on him he was sleeping you should have tried to ride him brian
3: (laughs) oh yeah that's a great idea i did Uh, try to touch a a deer a few years ago i was just reaching for his horn and he caught me when i was oh two feet away something like that and i wasn't able to get a hold of his horn but uh yeah i I like being that close
2: (laughs) that's so incredible man that's what it's all about right there the
1: heck with throwing rocks oh absolutely get up to two feet on them right well, yeah wait
2: till they fall asleep and just <laughs> <laughs> that's a
3: yeah
1: that's a best i way
2: did that
3: think. on another buck yeah so, i let him go to sleep i played the same game got in on him and just waited him out but luckily he'd been in that daybed for a while and i only had to give him oh 15 20 minutes when i got in position and there again his horn sunk and i leaned right up and his eyes were closed and his head was down and and I think he was about four yards or so and ended up shooting him right in his bed while he was sleeping too. Then he damn near ran over me. He come boiling out of that cut. He didn't know what happened or where that arrow came from and he went by me at probably five feet. I actually jumped out of the way because I thought I was going to get impaled when he came bombing out of there.
2: And these, these aren't little bucks either. I mean, these are, these are mature deer that have been around a while. Uh, right? These are
3: mature deer yeah. that have been around a while.
2: Yeah. Oh, that yep. is incredible.
3: Yep.
2: See, I always wow. get, I always get. James and I were talking about this before we got you on here. I think our problem is we always get in position, which usually isn't five yards. It's like twenty, and they're beheaded bedded behind a piece of sagebrush or something, and we're like, "All right, well, it's getting hot." Let's start hucking some rocks, or or let's do this or that. Or if I just keep sneaking closer, he'll just stand up, and and that never no works.
3: <laughs> no, so, that never works, and I don't think so, that ever will work.
2: So tell us
3: when you are at
1: that where a lot of guys stop at that twenty yards or forty yards. You got that wind in your favor. I get that. So I mean that's huge, but. Tell us, I mean, you got your boots off, I'm assuming. Like, what, what are some of the little nuances, some of the little tactics and techniques you're using to get into this spitting distance of these bucks?
3: In this broken, horrible country that I'm hunting, generally at 20 yards, you can't even see the deer. So, hell, there's, there's sometimes I don't have to actually, like, sneak or crouch until the last 10 yards or so because they're straight down off one of these mud banks i can just walk super quiet and slow basically straight up right uh and until just that last little bit when i'm starting to look for horn tips and then i'll i'll crouch down um but i'm going to go back to taking the boots off that that's a huge no-no if that deer i'll go back I lost my boots once on uh, trying to stalk an antelope, because so I read that's what you're supposed to do. And I ended up out in the sagebrush in the prairie stalking this antelope, and he just kind of kept moving. And I, I snuck in on him, and then he'd move a little bit. And it wasn't because of me. He was just kind of doing his antelope thing. And pretty soon I'm like 300 yards from my boots out in the prairie full of cactus, and my feet are just killing me. I buggered it on the antelope, end up having to go back, try to find my boots, figure out what piece of the 8 million pieces of sagebrush I, I put my boots behind and wander around for an hour, and my feet were so swollen and bloody and what a mess. No, there's, there's these little sneaker boot things. I can't remember who makes them, but they're these uh, soft felt material with just a Velcro flap over the top, and they slide on over your boots, and they have this real nice layer of padding. It's kind of like a huge moccasin.
1: Yeah, I it's keep called a. It's uh, in
2: my pack now.
1: It's called a Safari uh well, Super. They have a few
2: bear's yeah. feet, yeah. sneaky feet, or something. like
1: I, that. I've got some. They're the Safari Super Sneak Sneaky Sneakers, or something. They're they're all fleece with the Velcro, and they got that like. You got uh, it. Yep,
3: it's Safari. And and them my Sneaker boots.
1: Yep, yep, I got. I got, a, got like I ha-
3: four pairs of them.
1: I got some of those.
3: Yep. Those okay. things are the ticket. You don't want to wear them all day long. Cause you'll, you'll sweat in those things. And I tell you what, in steep terrain, there's no tread on the bottom of those things. You can't put your feet straight up and down or it's like a pair of skis and you will tumble down the hill. Everything yeah. when you're in those things, you got to be sidestepping. Yeah. But those things are the ticket. I would say it dampens sound by about 80%. So I just keep them. I keep them strapped to my fanny pack with a tiny little bungee cord. And when I'm getting to that last 100 yards or so, I slip those things on my feet and then make my stock in. And do- those things are imperative I in use, getting stick close to a mule deer.
1: I use those uh, in November in the tree stand to keep my feet warm.
3: Oh, that's a good idea, too. Yeah. They,
1: they, that's they, a good
3: they, idea, they, too. They do add yeah. a nice little level of insulation.
1: Yeah, and they make your feet quiet on the stand, but yeah, I'm going to have to keep those with me in my mule deer pack. So you do not ditch the boots.
3: No, I keep my boots on. I learned the hard way, man, that horrible cactus and all that stuff down there too. Gosh, uh,
1: and I, dep- I can't
3: imagine trying to walk.
1: So you're dependent on the, uh, on the terrain, having very broken, nasty, steep terrain with wind and without it, you're not interested. in That's interesting because some of the places I'm hunting there, that is available, but I seem to be a sucker, maybe laziness. I run into these bucks that are in the rolling sage and I go hunting them when I should probably go look for the bucks that are bedding in that really broken up nasty stuff.
3: Yep. And as soon as you start to get cooler temperatures, uh, or cloudy days, those bucks will go bed out in that rolling sage uh because they're they're safer out there it's harder to sneak up on them they know that and they're thinking coyotes and things like that uh absolutely but on those hot horrible windy days those sagebrush flats just don't cut it for them and they want to go down into that broken stuff and just disappear into those those dirty little cuts and that's that's what i'm dependent on is them going there because out in that rolling stuff, I mean, you can get the 40 yards on them, sure, but that doesn't cut it for me in the old recurve. So I'm, I'm pretty well dependent on, get getting them in the broken stuff.
1: What about the? Um, do you? Does your terrain that you're hunting have these? Um, in that steep stuff, have these mahogany points? Um, where I'm hunting, there'll be these kind of points with these mahogany trees, and they will be like three foot, four foot deep beds. And when they're in those holes in the ground, in those points, it seems absolutely and totally impossible. You can't get above them because they're up in this point and you can't, I don't know, I can't figure out how to, I, I can, I find them in them, but I can't figure out how to hunt them.
3: Yep. That, well, that's, that's just it. It is darn hard to hunt them. Uh, the place I hunted uh, 2007 through 2012 uh, had uh, uh cedar trees on the place and those deer would do that they would dig just a hole under these cedar trees on the shady side and sure you can sneak up behind the tree and then you're just stuck there there's not a darn thing you can do with them so that that's kind of one of those situations where you pass you don't really mess with them when they're under a tree wait for them to go get under a rock somewhere thankfully the place i'm hunting now there's virtually no trees on it it's as desolate and as dry As it is, there's one Russian olive sticking out of a hillside. Oh, I don't know, a couple miles from where I'm hunting, and that's like the tree. Other other than that, it's sagebrush and mud.
1: I'm so excited to go hunt some mule deer, but also hearing uh, the importance of the wind, which makes a lot of sense. It makes it tough for a guy when he's got ten days picked out, and he's hoping now he's hoping that it's going to be hot and windy.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating, but it's just a gamble. The nice thing about Wyoming is, seventy-five percent of the time the wind is blowing, and not just a little bit. That's just kind of the Wyoming signature. So I know going down there for a few weekends, I'm probably going to have more days. And you don't need like high, high winds. I get plumb excited when there's a twenty-five mile an hour just ripping wind, because that's that's ideal. But if a guy just has a little five, 10 mile an hour breeze blowing, that's enough to cover your sound. You gotta be darn careful. You're, you gotta be up to your game on your sneaking, but it can be doable just with that light, light breeze as well.
2: Well, and I know most places in the desert, you know, Nevada, the places I've hunted in Oregon and Utah, any of those places that high deserted, most afternoons you might have to wait until 12 or 1 o'clock. But most afternoons, that wind will pick up and it'll be pretty steady for a few hours and you'll get some good gusts in there. And so that's what I find myself doing is I'll, I'll even wait, I like to wait till one or two, you know, get close enough to where then I can slip in once that wind starts to pick up. And that gives you a few hour window when you do have some wind, even, you know, other states too. I think most places in the desert that I've hunted have gotten pretty, pretty windy in the afternoons. Yeah, I think
3: like yep, all That's hunting, exactly it. It's
1: all weather dependent no matter what game you're playing and what time of year and what, what critter you're chasing and I think learning to adapt, but it's tough. I mean I know the last time I went to hunt high desert mule deer, we had thunder rainstorms for days. And the bucks were not betting. They were like feeding all day long and they were moving like animals. Yep. And we were following them all day long and we just following deer for miles and miles and miles. Like they're going to lay down there and a couple would lay down and the other ones would stay up and it was, it was difficult at best.
3: Yep. Yep. That's That's exactly it. When it gets stormy like that, they just get on their feet and they stay on their feet and there's not a darn thing you can do with them, but sit at a distance and look at them.
2: Yeah. The patience yeah. game you've so you've all your bucks have been spot and stock bedded bucks you haven't i mean has there been any situations where waiting for him to get up to feed has worked out or you've had to wait for him to get up to feed you know for the evening or whatever maybe feed out of their holder in or anything like that or cut
1: them off and, and ambush them
3: that that gets to be pretty close or a pretty dicey deal there because mule deer are pretty unpredictable. Once they get up out of their bed and they start wandering up, even if they're just in a little draw, it, there's no rhyme or reason to what they do. They just walk around looking, going, "Oh, that blade of grass looks good. That blade of grass looks good." So you you go to try to cut them off, and they don't come out where you expect them to, or the they they get on the wrong side of the wind, and you blow them out, and you're done. You don't get your chance at another. If, if that mule deer smells you in his home turf, he is gone. A big mature buck will not tolerate uh, human stink. You can fool their eyes. You can fool their ears, but you can't fool their nose. And I don't like evening time is pretty much just watching for me. I'm happy to see them come out of wherever they've been go out to feed them, there's a good chance if if they're not disturbed they're going to come back to that same vicinity and bed the next day and i just bank on trying to put them to bed somewhere the next morning if i can find them again and and hoping i can do something with them the next day
1: and, and do you feel um your, your observation pursuing mature bucks you know it sounds like five six seven year old bucks um If the guy is just looking to shoot any mule deer buck, looking for, you know, a two-year-old, are these hard-fast rules or are these bucks um, a little more forgiving just by all the time you've spent watching these deer and the mistakes you've made? Um, You know, what's your thought on that?
3: Oh, young deer are certainly more forgiving. Those those two- and three-year-olds, I mean, they can... Pretty well, like see you up on a ridge a couple hundred yards away, and just think, oh, we're hidden down here. He'll probably go away, and <laughs> you can drop down and go sneak up on them, and they're still just laying right there, looking the other direction. Totally forgot they even saw you. You know, it it seems to be about that four and a half mark is where all of a sudden a mule deer goes from just a mule deer to turning into a gray ghost.
1: Right. So. When you're pursuing these bucks, I know in my limited experience, I'm finding groups as large as like sixteen and as small as like six. Are you finding bucks by themselves or are these bucks are going after are they in group bachelor groups?
3: When early September, when Bucks still have their velvet, they'll be in bigger groups, I've found. Um, And as they start to shed their velvet, all of a sudden they're looking at their buddies going, you know, I don't want to be quite this close to you. You should, you should go over there. I'm maybe going to go over here. So it's been way handier finding hard horn bucks. I mean, a group of 16 deer, you about don't have any sort of chance unless you got a good one bedded on the very outer fringe and everything's perfect. That's, that's damn near impossible. But, I've killed, oh, I think two two deer that I've killed down there have been with a friend and only one friend. Other than that, they've been single bucks. And sometimes they'll be feeding up in the high stuff together, but then they go down in the cuts and one will pick a cut here and then 50 yards away, the other one will pick a cut. So you you got to take into account if if there's a group of deer like that and you're putting them to bed and you're watching them you got to know where each one of them goes. You blow one out and you run through the rest of them. It's a game over too, but it's it's really darn tough to kill a deer that that has friends around him because they all bed different directions and they're all they, they'll pretty well cover all the landscape and it it makes it real hard.
1: That's very interesting because it seems like. It seems popular um, from the masses that I've kind of paid attention to that guys really want to get after these deer in the velvet and that it's really important that they find them in the velvet and in these groups where it seems like you really want them to be hard-horned and these groups to be broken up.
3: That's exactly what I'm looking for. Velvet doesn't get me... Too worked up. Uh, I don't really care if I ever shoot a mule deer in the belt, but if I'm having a monkey with six of them at a time, you know, I'm, I'm happy to find that hard horned big old boy off all on his own. Happy that.
1: This is a great perspective for sure.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a little different. I mean,
1: and then you're also hunting uh, by yourself, so you don't find much merit in having a partner to give you signals because, I mean, you're you you know where he's at you're moving right in on him, so you're not really playing that game either where you have someone walking you into the buck.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of a lone wolf guy for the most part. I, I really enjoy hunting by myself, and especially in these spot and stock situations. It's really hard for one to find somebody to hunt with who has the level of patience necessary. I've hunted with people before here and there who don't, don't have the patience to sit and do it. And I just find that aggravating and I, I'm much happier to just auger in and do my hunt exactly how I want to do it by myself, find the deer, put them to bed. No, I got the time to go in there. And if I make it happen, then it's all on me. And if I mess it up, it's all on me and I'm fine with that. And that's, that's kind of how I prefer to roll.
1: Yeah. that, that uh, I mean, it makes perfect sense. So, Besides the wind and the terrain, is there any other little small nuances that, uh, you know, that may, maybe uh, give us some, another secret or two from your bag of tricks? I mean, some things you're looking for uh, besides them just being asleep.
3: Well, yeah. Sleeping is real handy. You know, I've kind of given you some of them. They're looking for the cuts that, that afford the most shadows. That's, that's paramount. I mean, big mule deer are like vampires. It's like the sun touches them and they're going to just turn to dust. They want nothing to do with it. Um, the sneaker booties, that's, that's the big thing. The, the wind and it, it really comes down to patience. And if you're going to kill a big mule deer, you got to go to where a big mule deer lives. So if that's what a really turns a guy's crank, you got to do your homework and, and figure out where a big mule deer is going to be. I found one canyon back where I hunted from 7 to, to 12. This one canyon had everything it took to make a big mule deer happy. And when I went there, I would go to the same little canyon and glass it from the same knob a mile away every morning that I was down there hunting, and I killed a big mule deer in that canyon Every single time I went down there, I didn't bother looking anywhere else because it was just the right place for a big deer. It afforded, there was a little bit of water in the bottom of it. The cover was awesome. The shadows were awesome. It was harder than heck to see from anywhere. And a big mature deer that's been through a handful of hunting seasons wants the most secretive place he can find, and that was it. And I just had to be patient and wait, and that little canyon rewarded me every time I was down there.
1: Is there a food source? I know that you're not getting them feeding, but they've got to, they've got to feed, you know, if it's nocturnally. Uh, is there a food source when you're looking for that location? What, what are some of the, um, attributes you're looking for besides what you just explained?
3: The benches and the little plateaus, the high stuff will usually have the grass. Those, those cuts in those canyons are so steep and they're, they're mostly made out of mud, you know, and they just slide and ooze around. There isn't much for the deer to feed on. Uh, the very bottoms of the canyons, uh, will stay green and sometimes those big mule deer will go all the way from the plateaus and get all the way down in the bottom and do a little bit of grazing or you'll catch them there in the evening. They'll come out of their day bed and they'll go to the bottom of the canyon that's still shady and they'll feed in the grass, but then they'll, they'll come up high and get on get on those steps and benches that that grows the best grass and that's where they'll feed at night so i i'm I'm still not so sure that these mule deer don't somehow live on on rocks because sometimes you see them (laughs) coming back from somewhere it's like where were you at last night what what was over there that made you go there so it's not like there's agriculture alfalfa or anything around where where i'm hunting
2: and so is the, this the canyon food. that you found those bucks in, is it a north, like a north-south running canyon? So the shadows it's are right? Like east
3: said, west. right? It's, it's an east-west running canyon that had the nice steps above it that had grass and the bottom was, had had some little seeps. You'd have some little inside corners that would kind of hold a little bit of water for them. But all these fingers would come off this east west canyon going north and south so these deer could drop down and just pick you know one of a hundred little fingers to tuck right up in and have shade all day long and when the sun does start to catch them they can move six feet to the other side of this straight down little muddy cut and they're they're back in the shade for the rest of the day And which was nice because i could get on the edge of this canyon and i could look at those cuts and i would just work my way down the edge of that canyon during the day. And it was only, oh, the whole thing was probably a mile and a half long, but there was probably three-quarters of a mile of it that had the real good little cuts. So I could just peek all those little fingers in succession and move down it and try to find a set of horns sticking out of a hole in one of those little offshoots.
1: So you're starting the day in a canyon like this facing the west, so the sun is in your eyes when it comes up. And you're glassing yep. into this. And then once you have located the buck and he's moving to bed, now you're going to relocate to your glassing spot. So waiting for him to relocate his bed. Is that is that correct?
3: I will, yeah, you're starting with that sun coming up in your eyes and you're trying to, to catch him coming down. Usually they don't move too far. Once they drop into the Badlands, they have a place in mind and they're not going to move up and down the canyon real far. So if you see him drop in and you don't see him bad, you got a pretty good idea they might be within a 100 yards or so, and you just try to relocate yourself and start picking apart all the little pockets in there and see where he hunkered down into. And if you have a high enough vantage point looking down, you can generally find some horn tips. Sometimes it's real hard to see, and sometimes it, It it takes some hours of just tearing stuff apart and it might just, it might just take him doing nothing more than moving his head once when you're looking through the scope at the right spot and all of a sudden you go, aha, I couldn't see you until you just shook your horns a little bit and you saw a little flash and then you see what you can do with
1: them. Are you willing to go in on the stock not knowing his exact location if you know that you have a pretty good idea of somewhere and you're just kind of still hunting and glassing your way? To, to locating them, am I catching that wrong or right?
3: Uh, no, I pretty much want to know exactly where this okay. deer is it, it's got to be a pretty special circumstance to to be willing to go in and just
2: peek yes. a couple
3: little cuts and just surprise them right there Cause like I said, so many times you, you can't even see these deer until you're you know, 15 feet from them and if if you're just walking and peeking, that that's not going to so, work out. So you're, you're talking scare about I really work. want to see him lay down.
2: So when you're talking about working a canyon like this, you're talking about working it from far enough back, from a long ways away, basically. Like you might work your from, way down a ridge from, that looks into the canyon and stop and glass and glass and glass and move and glass, but you're not actually big. going up and peeking into the canyon like we're pictured
3: no 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 you can't play that game you got to start and if those shadows if you're working up the canyon if it's an east west canyon and that sun's coming up and those shadows are uh how did i get that wrong well just as you're working up or down the canyon you want to make sure that you're working the direction so you're looking into the shadows
2: yeah you can't start
3: from the sunny side and go peeking over edges into shadows
1: so often you're, get, you're working your way further and further away from the buck, trying to keep eyes on him until you have him where he's bedded before you come back all the way back around to put the stock on.
3: Exactly. It, it okay. really is paramount having an eyeball on where they're laying, even if you got to go the opposite the, direction and get a lot farther away to figure okay. it out.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay, I got you now. Very interesting.
3: Yeah, sorry um, if I wasn't, if I was confusing
2: you there. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about your, uh, your glass and setup. I mean, are you, are you, you like glassing off tripods? Do you have, I know a lot of guys that spend a lot of time glassing, they have little tricks, like, do you pack a little seat with you so you're comfortable? Do you, you know, you like in the shade? Hours, do you have a little umbrella? Hours. I know, I've heard, I've heard all kinds of crazy stuff, so.
3: Yeah, I, I go pretty light when I go, um, I got, a uh, uh, Vortex spot and scope. It's, uh, it's not the greatest scope in the whole world, but it's, it's one of their upper end models. I like it. I've had it for quite a while. It's got an angled lens. It's not a straight lens. Um, and then I got my Zeiss, uh, 10 by 40s that are, that are my binos on my chest. And I like the angled spot and scope. And I got a, a small tripod. It, it's a medium sized tripod, but it, It's, uh, one of those fancy Manfrotto's and you can adjust, you can flatten out the legs to where they're darn near all three legs are just flat and you can get it down on the ground. So I will tuck, if I got to pull a shirt over my head to kind of keep some sun off my back or something, I can just hunker down and with that angled lens, just put that scope right in my lap and have the tripod kind of going over the top of me and just be a little ball and, and be looking and, you know, I'll kick the cactus or something out of the way, you know, so I'm not sitting in a in a nasty spot. But there's a lot of times your you're belly crawling right up to the edge of one of these canyons and you can't skyline yourself. You skyline yourself. You just shot yourself in the foot. So you're looking for a piece of sagebrush or something that allows you a tiny bit of cover and you crawl up there. And I just put the legs of that tripod flat and that angle scope and I can twist it right or left too. So sometimes I'm laying on my belly with that scope turned sideways to me kind of trying to peek over the edge with that without skyline in my body and seeing what's going on down there.
1: And you had uh, said something about uh, a fanny pack. So I'm assuming if you're packing that stuff around, you've got a backpack and a fanny pack and you're leaving your Correct. bag and you, you ditch your bag for the stock or what does that look like?
3: I don't take my, once I have that deer located and I, I know where he's bedded and what I'm doing. I ditch the backpack. I ditch everything that is that is unnecessary to me. I got my little my little fanny pack. Uh I keep some plastic water bottles. I don't do like the disposable buy at the store, crinkly little water bottles. Those will those will kill you every time. I got two stiff little plastic water bottles with just a little flip top thingy for sipping on. And I take water with me and that's pretty much it. You know, I'll have a power bar or something before i start my stock but you can't open a candy bar when you're waiting for a big mule deer to stand up that's 10 yards from you so i try to just get a little food in my system and my my water and my fanny pack that's got a a knife and a tag in it and that's i'm going in as light as i possibly can
1: but you're keeping your boots
3: but i'm keeping my boots (laughs) a little bit of sunscreen too that sunscreen will save your life i put sunscreen on my hands and a little bit on my face. Uh, I do that unscented Johnson and Johnson. It goes on oil-free. It's not greasy or nothing like that. And boy, you'll you'll get a dirty burn. About the time you're stuck for two hours uh, waiting out a deer and half your body is catching sun. Oh my gosh! I mean, you you will burn so bad out there in that stuff. So I I go long sleeve shirts that the super lightweight fabric. Just anything to keep the sun off me. A little boonie hat that I can I can flip the bill up in the front so it doesn't bother my bowstring, but it still offers a little bit of shade on my neck and and over my ears and stuff. So I'm not just cooking myself.
1: And I imagine camouflage is not a really a big thing to you. It's just a matter of comfort.
3: It, it's a matter of comfort, certainly. Um, I'm, I'm still I like. I'm not a matchy matchy camouflage guy. Uh I'd never make it in a in a catalog anywhere. <laughs> I I like dark bottoms and I like a lighter top uh just in case I do get busted or seen. A human form sticks out so bad even when you're all matchy matchy in the same stuff. I like to to break it down and and have something certainly lighter as light as a train or maybe a touch lighter. Uh, on, on my top, I never go dark on top. You go dark on top, you, you stick out like a sore thumb and if a deer across the canyon or something sees you peeking up, uh, dark camouflage just doesn't cut it. So that, uh, real tree, what is it? Max one, I think it is, is kind of that real light sagebrushy looking stuff. Yep. Uh, first light camouflage makes some stuff that's, that's in that color. I love that stuff. And that super light merino wool. Um, that, that stuff's killer for it. I really like my QU as well. Uh, anything that reflects sunlight is a, is a bad deal too. Cause you you get shiny out there and boy, an animal can pick you up. So, and a lot of camouflage has some shiny fibers in it. I don't know why they do it like that, but it's useless. I really like that super light merino wool stuff that QU and first light has. That's, that's my go-to for these early season hunts.
1: Absolutely. And, and as far as your face?
3: Yeah, I don't like face paint. I don't like that gunk all over my sm- face, smeared all over. I got uh, those little spandiflage headnets that fit like the skin, and I, I cut my eyes out of them and then just have my nose sticking out, and I'll still have it over my mouth. Because when you're head-checking some of these places and the sun's in your face the way you want it to be so you're seeing the shadows, a human face sticks out sticks out like a light bulb out yeah. in that prairie. So I got my little spandiflage head net that I keep on, and then my little boonie hat is this real dull material that absorbs light. It doesn't reflect anything. It's not shiny. So when I'm head checking, it's only my eyeballs and my nose sticking out. And and I do the same thing when I'm sneaking up on these deer because you're having to peek over that edge sometimes and try to see horn tips and all that, and I, I want as little reflection. I got these super little light gloves, too. That, uh, I wear on, on my bow hand because just even the, the skin on your hand, uh, when you're, when you're bringing your bow up sticks out awful bad. So I wear that super light little glove to, uh, camouflage my bow hand and my draw hand doesn't matter. I've got my shooting glove on and it's at the other end of things. And if I'm already back at full draw, they're probably in trouble already anyways.
1: (laughs) Right. So what about your bow equipment? I know we've probably covered that on the last one, but what is, uh, what does your equipment look like these days? What's and, going
2: And before we get to there, is there anything you do to camo your bow or your quiver or anything like that?
3: Um I I don't camo my bow. Uh my my long bows I shoot have a I like snake skin. I got the snake skin on the outside of the limbs and uh all the bows I've had made have a matte finish on them so they don't they're not like the old bear, you know, glossy shine in the sunlight you know uh i've got one bow that is that is spray painted with a with a flat spray paint on the limbs because it it did kind of have some shinier limbs and i like but um my schaefer silver tip uh 65 pound old reliable go-to bow that they've made for me back in 2003 is is my bow of choice for for going mule deer hunting it's comfortable uh I'm warmed up and my muscles are feeling good, so 65 pounds isn't an issue pulling back, even when I've been sitting there for a while with them. And it's, it's got, uh, yeah, real, real nice matte fish finish on it. It doesn't reflect light, so I, I don't bother with that. What's
2: your arrow set up?
3: Right now I'm shooting the Easton, uh, traditionals, Um the, the 500s. I got a, uh, 50 grain insert i put in them then i'm shooting 150 grain vpa uh three blade non-vented uh you know cut on contact sharpen yourself kind of head uh it's a it's not a super heavy arrow i think i'm at 525 or 530 something like that but it shoots real nice and flat it uh it, it just really works out of my bow setup I, I like it a lot. And I'm a carbon fan, too. I used to shoot wood and make my own arrows and do that whole nine yards. But, boy, I appreciate the forgiveness of that carbon and just don't have to worry about much with those things anymore.
2: Yeah, you're shooting the fake wood now.
3: <laughs> yep, the fake wood. The fake yeah.
2: wood. That's, uh, and then exactly. You, you, exactly. Why do you choose the three-blade over the two-blade? This is always a good argument in a traditional community.
3: Yeah, I shot two-blade for a long time. Um, I switched to three-blade in about 2007. Actually, it was the first year I went mule deer hunting. I I shot Zwicky's and Magnus for a long time off aluminum arrows, and when I switched to carbon arrows, uh, I switched to the Magnus that already had a an insert seated in them. And it still took a lot of work to get them to go, and I killed a few bears, and I wasn't very happy with the blood trail on them. I'd never been completely keen on the blood trail on a two blade head. I mean, if you hit them in the right spot, it's a done deal. But if you, if you hit them a little far back, I just never got the blood I was wanting out of a, out of a broadhead. And I switched and started shooting three blades and all of a sudden there was a heck of a lot more blood on the ground in about any circumstance. And I didn't have much for penetration issues. Uh, going from three-blade to two-blade. And then when I started, I found these BPAs, and they're a hard steel. They're they a tougher head to sharpen, but once you get on an edge on them, holy smokes, they're crazy. And pretty much everything I've shot with those things for a good handful of years, I've had complete pass-throughs all the way from elk to, you know, black bears and, and all the deer and stuff. So I... I, I'm willing to sacrifice a micron of penetration for a nice three-blade hole that I know isn't going to seal up on me.
1: Yeah, that makes uh, perfect sense, especially. Um, now, are you shooting the three-blade head even when you pursue um, elk? Yep.
3: Yep, yep that three-blade non-vented 150 grain has pretty much been, it, it's turned into my go-to for, for everything I hunt.
1: Yeah.
2: And do you just file sharpen them? How do you do the sharpening?
3: Uh, flat stones. Flat stones. I got a a coarse, uh, a medium and a fine. And usually it, it just takes a little work out of the package to get a good edge on them. You know, if you shoot a critter or something, it takes, you gotta hit it with that coarse stone to get it back if you're in rocky, gnarly stuff. I've shot a few critters honestly that I've picked my arrow up that's laying in the dirt or stuck in the dirt and i take it out and it's like a few brushes with a fine stone and it's right back to sharp it's a very hard steel so i keep it just one of those little tiny g5 uh flat stones that have a, a kind of a finishing edge and then a, a medium edge on it uh on on the two sides i'll keep one of them in my fanny pack and i'll just touch up my broadhead every once in a while but yeah, the, the two-blade heads I used to shoot, I, I'd do like a 10-inch mill bastard file and I'd put an edge on them that way, but I, I don't do that with my with my three-blades.
1: Yeah, because the three-blade, you you're just you laying it flat on the stone and doing two, two edges at once, right?
3: Yep, two edges at once and just trying to keep a nice even stroke. And I like to go sideways. Some guys push forward, some guys push back. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of, of going sideways and, and back towards me. I don't ever really push forward, but so uh, sideways for me back seem and forth. just just one direction. I don't go back and forth and back and forth. I try okay. to keep real constant pressure and just keep everything going. I and I go to the right for whatever reason, um, and that seems to be the best way for me to get a good edge. And then I'll I'll finish them uh, usually initially on a, a leather strap too. Just, just to get that real real fine, good edge on them.
1: Okay. So you, 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 you keep pushing to the right, pushing to the right. All right. Yep,
3: I push to the right. I, I got a belt that has, it's, it's, it's so old and it's just slick as can be. It works real good for a leather strap. I can just take it off and I can just brush it on that nasty old leather belt, and it, and it works great.
1: So I've got a couple, I guess, last questions in closing here. Um, one is probably a really stupid question, but how, how do you like, like, let's talk about patience. Cause you, you were really exercising your patience. Uh, what do you do with your time when this is just dead and you know, it's not happening today, but you're observing. I mean, are you taking naps? Uh, are you, are you doing pushups and sit ups? Uh, what, what are you doing all day long uh, w- when you know that it's not going to happen? Are you on the move looking for other deer? Um, what are you doing with your time?
3: It completely depends on where I'm hunting and and what time of day it is and where the shadows are. I mean, there There is a point usually around lunchtime when that sun is straight up and down. And it's hotter than the Dickens. And if it's just dead comb, and you know you don't really have a chance, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to the truck. I'll take a nap, you know, shit, I'll sleep for three hours, something like that. Just because I'm up at 3.34 in the morning to, to get out to where I'm hunting and then get in, you know, before sunup. So if it just isn't happening, I'll I'll just go back and take a nap. You know, have a Gatorade and a sandwich and hang out. I always have books in my truck. I I love to read. So... I might open up a book and get in a handful of chapters and then, then go back out for the evening. But as far as just sitting on a knob at 90 degrees on a dead calm day with the sun straight overhead, knowing that I can't do anything with a deer and I probably can't even find one right now anyways. No, I'm, I know well enough when to, when to throw in the towel and just be done for a while.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I guess. I guess uh, <laughs> I was imagining you doing that, uh, so I guess why it was such a stupid question on my part. Uh, but that makes sense. I mean, it seems difficult for us guys that are thinking, okay, I'm going to go on the seven or eight day hunt that I'm, you know, going to go back to camp because I I just hate to go back to camp. But I guess that if you know it's not going to be any good, um, that makes the most sense, I suppose, to go back to camp and and chill out.
3: Yep yeah mean, you can punish yourself and just stick around out there and hoping a deer is going to magically pop out of a hole. But at that point in the day, and if it's that hot, no deer is going to stand up and walk around and show himself to you just for no reason. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, an old hound dog kind of knows when to, when to take a nap and get ready for the hunt. And <laughs> I prefer to take the old hound dog <laughs> approach there when it gets like that.
2: I like it. it. I, I okay. like your style.
1: I do too. I do too. So, so here's the other big one. This is the one that me and Bob suffer from. It's just the, the ongoing, never ending debate. Cause today, when we get off the phone, I guarantee you, it's all, it's the year of the mule deer. I guarantee it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, soon as, soon as we see a YouTube video with the screaming bull elk, or we gaze over and look at a, an elk antler. We start thinking about how do we give up September for uh, for mule deer. Um, is, is that a uh, is that difficult for you to uh, leave elk country and, and pursue mule deer during uh, September?
3: No, I I like elk hunting and I love mule deer hunting. <laughs> and our elk rut usually peaks about the twenty second or so of September. And we still get bulls bugling and and kind of rutting into early October. So I burn a few weekends or whatever, early September, when the elk hunting's basically dead. Everybody gets so gung-ho to go charging into the elk woods at 80 degrees uh, for so elk true. that are not rutting. I would prefer to take that time when it's optimal for mule deer, go chase mule deer for the first few weeks of September, then I can hopefully kill a deer and, and be home to bother the elk and latter September when it's cooler and maybe, you know, all the way in, I've killed a couple bulls in, oh, 5th, 10th of October, something like that, that are still kind of just on that tail end of the rut. And are,
1: are you are you going to get after the mule deer on September 1st this year, or do you wait a little bit?
3: My plan this year is uh, is is September 1st. You know, I I like them, I like just getting down there because that's the, it's closer to summer, you know? As as you get farther into September, you're running into more cooler temperatures, you're running into more cloudy, rainy days. But that, those first two weeks of September, you've still got those hot temps and the wind's probably going to be blowing and that's, that's just the optimal time to be, uh, to be down there looking for those things.
1: Okay. Bob, do you have uh, anything that we missed?
2: Oh, I'm sure we missed stuff. I'm just dreaming of big mule deer right now.
1: (laughs) I I don't want to change the subject too much, uh, but me and Bob did go hunt mule deer in November this year, um, and it was pretty lackluster. Uh, A lot of it had to do with uh, uh, lack thereof, predator management, and the area we were hunting um, but I do know that you do probably pursue them a little bit. I know you're more of a whitetail guy come November, um, but what what do you have to say about mule deer in November?
3: Yeah, you know, I've never honestly hunted a mule deer in the high desert in November. like I said there there's no option for that in Wyoming. My tag is only good every year for September. Uh, I haven't traveled anywhere else to hunt mule deer in November because I'm, I'm in full on whitetail mode and I I just want to hunt the whitetails in November when they're rutting. So I really haven't bothered with mule deer that much uh, outside of the odd one you bump into here in Montana, but it's pretty tough to find a mule deer that trips my trigger in Montana after going down and looking at the big ones in Wyoming, you know, you come up here and you're looking at average little bucks here and there. And I'd rather go chase a whitetail.
2: Copy that. So, um one question when you when you're chasing these big bucks because obviously you're you're going after the big mature bucks do you find that they bed in the same spot like every day like will will you find a buck that that's his that's his bed he likes to bed there and you're watching him and you have days that aren't windy so you're just watching him go from there to there or is it always changing
3: It seems to always change. I haven't found a mule deer who prefers the exact same bed every day, but I found them bedded within 20 yards of where they bedded the day before. Um, Some of these beds you find are just so worn out and and the deer always palm out. And after eons of these deer palm these beds out, they turn into more like little, like war bunkers. And, I always keep, when I find those, the ones that are getting real good use, I darn sure keep them in the back of my mind and I will check those beds because you'll find, you'll find a deer in, in that bed one day and the next day you'll go back and there's a completely different deer that you've never seen before in that bed. So they, they all know where the good spots are, but it never seems like that big buck will go bed in the exact same hole every day. He might be said, he might be 20 yards away. He might be two 300 yards away uh but usually still in the same little finger system or canyon system once they get a, a home range that they get comfortable with they seem to usually bed fairly close to the same vicinity it's taken me oh four days to hunt and kill uh two different big bucks and i put them to bed in the same canyon system every day and just had to be patient and just just wait for the for the right right time to to go in and make a play on them but i i always found them i knew where they were feeding i knew about where they were going to bed and 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 it's worked out but patience is the big thing i i can't stress that enough it's mule deer hunting spot and stock with the stick bow is patience
1: so I, I thought of a few things that I might have missed. We, we kind of covered all the gear. Uh, it, as far as boots go, is there a, something you like better than not? Is there features in boots that you like better for the desert? Um, or does that, is, does it really matter to you?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I do not like clunky, heavy, stiff-soled boots when I'm stocking mule deer. I'm, uh, I'm wearing the, the Mendel uh, light, uh, perfects right now. Yeah. They, uh, the, the regular perfects are, uh, are nice, nice boots, but you just can't feel the, the terrain under your feet as well as, as you need to with with that stiffer sole. So these light ones I found there's, there's good giving them. They're still a waterproof, element to it because early in the morning there's dew in the grass and all that you don't want to start your day with wet feet so basically you need to be able to feel those rocks and the dirt clods and the grass clumps everything if you can't feel feel that through the soles of your boots i think your boots are too stiff for doing spot and stock hunting like this and this kind of high desert terrain
1: okay and are you hiking into this in the dark to your glassing location uh, every morning from camp or are you baby hunting sometimes or do you always have a base camp? What does that look like?
3: You know, I, uh, I take my quad and I'll usually get Oh, the place I'm hunting. Now it takes me about, it's about four miles to to get through this place, kind of a diagonal where I know there's no deer going to be. And they got their little two tracks on the place that, they, they go to the water tanks and this is and that. So I'll just buzz my quad and save myself four miles of hiking and, and then just put on my pack and, and climb up on some of these real tall knobs that overlook the right stuff. And I just spend my day up on them knobs looking around. Uh, and if I see something great, if not, like I said, if it gets hot and miserable, I can just go get on my quad and get back to uh, where I park my truck and have a sandwich and, and all that but uh yeah getting that badlands i just put my pack on my back usually and just make sure i stay out of sight and i'll just walk the the off sides of these rims and stuff and just peek up on the high points as i as i hike around and 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 make my circles of this stuff
1: and it sounds like you uh, definitely got a a great system going and you've got a sounds like a couple nice. Uh, bucks to prove it
3: yeah yeah it's worked out so far and uh getting into it a little later in the game like this i'm still learning uh like i said i didn't grow up doing the spot and stock thing but once i started doing it and killed some some mountain goats and some different critters you know all spot and stock i i pretty well abandoned <laughs> a lot of my other methods i don't call ilk or i don't do anything like that most anything you know shy of whitetails me being in a tree stand for them, I'm everything else. I'm hunting is spot and stock because that just really trips my trigger.
1: That's awesome. Can can you share one more small story with us? A mule deer story to to wet our mouths.
2: Well, before we before we get to the story, we'll finish off with a story. But how many bucks have you killed? Like you know, we don't usually you know most track guys don't like to talk about how many animals they kill. But just to give our listeners a little a little insight into how <clears throat> dialed you have this. Um,
3: Uh, I've killed, I killed eight, eight bucks now since I started in, in 2007. And, uh, I, I've got lucky and I found some awfully good ones, you know, over the, a few over the 190 mark and stuff, a few in the 180s. And it's been lucky. The mule deer I killed this year was the smallest mule deer I've ever killed by a dang site and uh i gotta say he's he's pretty much my favorite buck after that big two and a half hour waiting game then shooting him at 10 feet while he was nice. sleeping and he was he was 145 inch right at you know pope ish and uh yeah it's not always the size of the animal that makes sense you know i'm a big experienced guy and some of my favorite critters have been my smaller ones but Boy, when you're looking at a big, ugly, 190 inch non-typical bedded five yards from you, you can just see horn tips. That, that gets your kicker pumping, that's oh, for sure.
2: <laughs> and, and just how smart, I mean, for guys that don't hunt mule deer that listen to this, like how smart a old, big old buck like that is and how, how hard it is to kill one with a stick bow is, uh, it's an incredible yeah. accomplishment
3: it's something else. I mean, a big mule deer buck, I think is one of the smartest animals alive. And like I said, you can fool their ears. You can fool their eyes a little bit, but if, if they smell you, it's over with. So when, when you commit to going all in on a stock on one of these things, you know, you're pretty much going to get one chance. And if you, if you want me to finish with a story here, I could, uh, I could finish with this big old non-typical that actually a buddy of mine nicknamed Pulley because he told me that the only way I was going to kill this deer is if I got a bow with pulleys on it because there was no way in heck I was going to ever get close enough to him with a stick to kill him. And that old deer took me four days to kill and I could only hunt him half a day. I could hunt him from noon on because the way I had to access this canyon where he lived, it was impossible to access in the morning and have the sun right and the wind right. So I had to wait and kill time. (laughs) Like you were saying, what do you do for all that time? Pretty much go crazy until noon knowing that the shadows were going to be right. And I was able to walk way out of my way down this fence line, then come in on the bottom side of this canyon and look up it and try to, try to get a glimpse of him. And uh first day I snuck in, got about 40 yards from where he was bedded and knew I was dead in the water. There ended up being a couple does with him. And I hung out there. I spent, oh, I don't know, a couple hours there probably at 40 yards, but I I couldn't move. I was basically pinned by where these does were. And the scruffy old antelope comes over the ridge on me and comes feeding up towards me and sees me lets out this great big snort and goes running right down through the middle of the deer and I watch them all charge away and I thought my it was over for me but it wasn't me that spooked the deer they didn't they never knew I was around so I gave it the next day I went back in at noon did the same thing got in there looked around that canyon ended up finding him up on this butte with a little buck and and they were they were bedded just under the lip of this butte And I devised a plan, made a huge loop around, took me probably two hours of walking to get around this canyon and get up to where they were. And I got 15 yards from that big guy. And I'm tucked down there. The wind's hitting me hard in the face. And that little turd two-point buck gets up and decides to feed. And he feeds right up to me. And I had that deer probably five or six feet from me. And I'm tucked down in a little ball next to a sagebrush, basically with my face in the dirt and that deer analyzes man he decides he doesn't like me and he he kind of he didn't blow up but he he startled and ran off he never smelled me he never got on the downwind side of me and that big buck went up with them. they dropped down in the canyon poof gone day number three i go back in there at noon same deal looking around i didn't find that deer till right at dark and I couldn't do anything with him that day, so it was just a back-out situation. Day four, go in there, and I'll be darned if I didn't find him with with another buck bedded. Oh, he was probably half a mile at the opposite end of this gnarly canyon, but I found him tucked up, and I crawled in on him, and I got to about 15 yards again. And this other buck ended up standing up and i was stuck in the most uncomfortable position and the winds just pounded me right in the face and i had my knee kind of tucked under me and i thought my leg was going to fall off it was hurting so bad and when the other buck finally laid back down i tried to reposition my knee just a little bit and i made a scrape sound with my foot and both those deer just up and took off went down the canyon and I watched them go about a mile, and they tucked up in this little shadowy pocket, and they just sat staring my direction. And I just laid there flat in the sagebrush and straightened out my legs. I knew they couldn't see me because the sage was tall enough. And I had got some feeling back in my legs, and I ended up belly crawling probably a 400 yards to that sagebrush to where I got out of sight of where those two deer were and during that time, I was able to peek through the sagebrush with my binos. I can see they laid down again. I was able to get out of there, belly crawling like a snake, to where they they never saw me, and I looped all the way around. This canyon was huge, too, and I looped all the way around, and it took me hours to get to the other side, opposite side, loop all the way around. I was able to make a sneak over the top. And those deer were still bedded at the same ugly little cove. And I I snuck in and just waited him out. And they were still staring the direction that I had been. They never saw me. They never smelled me. All I was was a sound. They didn't like. And since since they never saw me and never smelled me, I, I was able to get away with it. But I waited that deer out till oh, it was probably 6 o'clock in the evening. And I was just above them. And he finally decided to stand, and he was still zeroed in on exactly where I was, you know, a mile away that morning where I made that sound and scared him. And that allowed me to to raise up and and shoot him right through the lungs at 15 yards because he was still worried about that sound I had made, you know, six hours previous. Wow. And he he was a big old brute. He was a a seven-and-a-half, eight-and-a-half-year-old deer. horrible that's the only mule deer i've ever killed that has been (laughs) not so tasty on the table but yeah he was he was 185 inch uh, uh what i think he was in nine by six i'm trying to remember but just heavy horn mule faced old ears were all split and beat up and he was just a tank and that that was one heck of a fun hunt but four days after that big dude and they never smelled me, and they never saw me. It was always something else that went wrong, and I was able to keep after it.
1: And you, and you killed the pulley buck with the
2: real
3: bow. I killed the pulley buck with a good old chaper silver tip recurve.
2: Yep. <laughs> oh, man, that's so awesome. That is, that is the ultimate. That's what hunting's all about right there. That's what bow hunting's about. Man, you outwitted yeah, it the, was. the master right there. You're a heck of a bow hunter, man. That is incredible.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh,
2: luck had a bit to do with it.
1: Four hundred yard belly crawl. Uh That's some. There's more than just luck there. That is some <laughs> yeah, dedication, just, right just there.
2: Just a little bit. There was a few good decisions being made right there.
3: That that was brutal. I will say that tested about as much as a guy has getting dragging dragging yourself through the cactus and everything else. And but it was the only option I had. And darn it, I'd been down there for. 10 days that was that hunt i told you about that the first week was all dead comb and i couldn't do anything and then i had so i was down there for whatever geez you know 12 13 14 days and to finally have it come together on that big deer that, that was a pretty special deer uh, wow so cool yeah
2: incredible man incredible well we don't want to keep you all day i know you just probably rolled in from work and need to run into the house and see your family we appreciate it so much man i mean we are so excited right now to go go deer hunt and uh, i know our listeners will be too and it's it's that time of year to be planning so uh for our listeners out there if this doesn't get you excited to go chase some some giant mule deer around i don't know what will so we appreciate you sharing (laughs) it with uh with everybody and i know i picked up some tips from uh from you for sure that I'll be uh, trying out while I'm out there because unlike you, I'm a lot slower of a learner and uh, definitely don't have it figured out. And it's co- so awesome to talk to guys like yourself that have been doing it for so long because everybody, everybody has their little tricks and they all, you know, they all make, make it work in their own way, you know, and uh it's just very interesting for a guy like myself who, you know, lives and breathes bow hunting for sure.
1: I appreciate the, uh, the sharing of the knowledge because um, it is super helpful. And I think a lot of guys uh, hold back and um, I do appreciate that. And I also want to say that uh, I really, you know, like uh, and respect the answers you gave us, you know, um, uh, on the questions that we asked. Uh, so, you know, hats off to you. Thank you so much.
3: Well, yeah. Thank you guys. This has been a, pleasure certainly and yeah i mean the spot and stock hunting it's it's all the tricks i mean you guys have had marv clinky on and and all that i mean talk about a mule deer master right there just try to pick up and absorb what what guys like him are talking about and it's not like you're asking for what canyon i'm hunting in so yeah there's nothing but information to share and try to help out and that's kind of the trag community is its own right there you know i mean I kind of feel like the trad guys are usually really willing to help out and, and give as much info and and help as they can. I know there's a lot of them that have certainly helped me over the years and, and Josh, trying to give even a little info back about a sneaker booty. I mean, whatever a guy can do to, to see somebody be successful out there with a stick and string.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Amarv Klinky, as you say, he is one of my favorite human beings and that podcast was awesome. But I think, what uh why this one has got me so excited is because we don't have alpine deer we're 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 hunting the high desert and so just talking to you about hunting high desert has got us you know just fromming at the mouth so yeah thanks again
3: good good well i'm i'm excited for you guys hopefully you guys can get out there and find one and get in and do that <laughs> Twelfth yard when they're sleeping shot or something there's there's nothing better than that.
2: There'll be some stories they might be the uh the misses or the mishaps, but there'll be some stories for sure
3: <laughs> i got I got a few of them too, but uh yeah, you guys can bother me about
2: that <laughs> oh we time. will we will
1: or <laughs> Oregon is kind of not a great state for anything i guess uh <laughs> but blacktails. <laughs> Because it's one of have, the only
2: states. <laughs>
1: yeah. But we do have uh, a traditional-only area for mule deer in the high desert. So that kind of cuts out the compound hunters from going there. And it is a very, very remote area. And I think everyone kind of hunts in the same spots, but you can get away from those spots. And there is deer that, to be had there. Um, and I've put my eyes on some good bucks. And so it's kind of exciting to go hunt somewhere where you know that – uh uh is kind of set aside for traditional gear only and um i've i'm kind of looking forward to it i've been putting it off for several years i haven't been back there for four or five years and i'm i'm gonna do it i'm getting excited about it
3: gotcha is it is it a pretty big area like you can like baby in and just camp there and stuff
1: yeah it's um it's a pretty large area it's two different mountain ranges and everyone seems the roads are real rough and everybody's that does hunt it seems to hunt up on top but there is some big nasty canyons and gorges that you can get you can go bivvy into and um, or even just hike in and out of uh, day hunt in and out of um, and it is uh-huh. also very remote it's the Nevada border and it's it's many hours from anything um, and many hours to get up in there so it's there's not a, a lot of dudes that are like going deep into the canyons and tearing it up.
3: Oh yeah. My advice for you on that is to find the hardest place to get to that is the steepest and the nastiest and the ugliest and go there and stay there.
1: Okay. I think I'm going to do that then.
3: <laughs> yep, Cause that's where you're going to find the biggest old deer. Yeah. there's no two ways around that you guys hit Mike Barrett on the same deal too and you find the most god-awful ugly horrible stuff that's the hardest to get to and that's where you're gonna find a good box
1: so if I do that um, I need to stay back though a bit right like if I'm gonna camp and stay in those type of areas uh, you know how far back do I need to like if I'm looking at something do I need to stay back a couple miles or uh, what's your suggestion on that
3: oh you know, I wouldn't it, – it, it depends on what you find. You know, you don't want to be camping anywhere. If you're camping up high and looking down the, these big canyons or anything, you don't want any point to where the wind is ever going to take your scent and drift from you down the canyon. You know, that's a big no-no. Those deer will pick you up from a mile away, and they won't like it. Um, if camp, camp wherever you won't be – putting yeah. any scent yeah. into where you're hunting and whether that's a hundred yards or, or two miles that's up for you to to, to make that but yeah. the, as the thermals change you just don't want ever any of your scent to to waste down through where these deer are sleeping for the day because they will not tolerate it
1: yeah okay that's perfect good good advice thank you awesome yeah. well thank, thank you yeah, so much Absolutely. We're, we'll we we'll uh we'll have well, to get you, you back in, uh, yeah. after season and good good luck to you out there in wyoming
3: yeah yeah thank you good luck to you guys too i'll dip you some photos here and looking forward to your stories after this fall <laughs> we'll
1: awesome. do our thanks best brian. thanks brian we- uh, your old man will be getting a hold of him soon
3: perfect i'll uh i'll let him know I'll i'll call him tonight and tell him you guys are gonna bother him he'll be happy awesome
2: all right, thanks, Brian. Take okay. it easy, brother. Take care of that family. Well, you
3: guys have a good evening. Well, yeah, thank
2: you, exactly. guys. Oh, thank thank you. you, man. Thank you for your time. We know you're a busy, you know, working guy, so we really appreciate it, and uh, we'll definitely uh, get you back on here to talk some more.
1: Once again, thank you guys for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Check us out on Instagram, dragquest.com. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast iTunes that helps the podcast a ton. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot a big old mule deer this fall. It's frosty morning,
0: the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing, the deer are fat and happy. No, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer. I've got freeze of air. The only cure for what I've got is there. I've got pneumonia, rosacea, long boils on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can play a few.